Welcome into a bonus version of the Inside the Pylon podcast. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield here, as always, as your hosts. And we've been doing a segment on our website, on InsideThePylon.com, for the last two weeks now, in which former scout Dan Hatman, who now runs the Scouting Academy, has been doing a piece every day on 10 key rules from Matt Miller, who is the lead draft analyst with Bleacher Report. And really, we've been digging into all of those different rules, trying to figure out what makes scouting departments tick and what really are some of the key things to focus on when scouting players. So Mark and I had the idea a couple weeks ago to try to do a roundtable with both Dan and Matt, and we're fortunate enough that both of them did agree to join us today. So I do want to welcome in Mark as well as both of our guests, Dan Hatman and Matt Miller, and appreciate everyone uh, getting together at one time here. Yeah, you bet, guys. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you. A big fan of your work, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. And, and, and Matt, I want to start off just by posing a question for you. And this whole thing, you've been talking about some of the big things, the 10 key things to focus on with scouting. And I want to talk to you about really your self-evaluation process more than anything else to start off. And, you know, what is your process for figuring out where you do actually make mistakes in evaluation? And how do you go about correcting that? Well, I mean, I, I think that's like the biggest part of our job that no one talks about is, is figuring out where you went wrong, especially when you work on the media side because you don't have that, you know, you don't work in a scouting department where you're doing a lot of self-study or you're doing positional studies. Um, so for me, I, I try to approach it just like an NFL team would. Um, you know, um, since I cover the draft and the NFL, I think it helps because I'm able to see guys, you know, see how they progress, to see what they do year one, year two, year three, and then I can go back and look at my scouting notes or my grades and say, okay, this is this is what the guy's doing. I'm seeing him do this on Sundays, um, and here's where maybe where I missed. You know, whether it's on the you know on the Trent Richardson side of things where a guy it just doesn't click, he doesn't have it, or if it's on the the opposite side. You know, um, a guy like Kelvin Benjamin, who I wasn't a big fan of pre-draft, but then you see how well he fits into a scheme and how he's kind of able to do those things in the NFL that he did at Florida State. And, you know, that's actually like one of the rules that I wrote was just like, you know, look for the good in a player. Like, what can this guy do? How can he help us win? And, and I think Benjamin's a good example of that. And then you start to think about, you know, how well can he progress? Uh, what's the upside? So a lot of my self-scouting comes just by nature of my job title at Bleacher Report because I'm, I'm constantly reevaluating these guys as NFL players. So I'm able to really kind of compare and contrast to what I saw pre-draft. I mean, so I guess on the team side of things, that would be like having your pro scouting department and your college scouting department getting together every summer and saying like, okay, these are the guys who are good in the pros. Here's where maybe we missed on them in the college game. Matt, how long does it take in terms of your development as a scout? Because we see that there's a ton of people that come out every year and start talking on Twitter and, and somewhere on the internet in some corner of the internet about here, here's my thoughts on uh, what's going to happen this year in the draft and here's why I think it's going to happen. How long did it take for you to really feel comfortable even with your own scouting process? Oh my gosh, a long time. Um, you know, if you guys aren't real familiar with my path to this job, you know, I did this for free for eight years as a hobby. Um, and in the meantime, you know, I had a full-time job, but I, I coached high school football. I coached semi-pro football. I did some scouting for an Arena 2 team. Um, so, I mean, I always tell people, I started writing in 2001. 
I didn't start really scouting players till about 2010 because I just don't feel like I knew enough. You know, I could listen to Mel Kuyper and regurgitate his opinions and, and, you know, kind of make some of my own. But until about, you know, five years ago, I don't feel like I really knew enough to say, you know, I'm going to watch this player, I'm going to look for these traits, and I'm going to put a grade on it. And, and actually valuing players. Like, before then, I was a guy who wrote mock drafts. And I watched a lot of football. And, and really, about 2010 is when I, I started to change my idea of, you know, what, what I wanted my job to be, you know, how I wanted to present myself to readers and to fans and how I wanted to present myself to teams and players. So um, it's been a, a long, ongoing process. And, and I'll say that I, I continue to learn, you know. I mean, whether it's meeting guys like, you know, like you guys or, you know, making contacts around the league, like, when I make a contact with a team scout, like I'm not doing that to break news and be Adam Schefter. I'm doing it so I can learn more about being a scout because that's ultimately my goal is to you know do the same job that these GMs and college scouting directors are doing, but give that information to the general public instead of to a team. Absolutely. And I want to turn now and, and ask a question to Dan as well because we've been talking about this series we've been doing with your 10 scouting rules here. And Dan, my question to you is, Matt put out this list of his 10 scouting rules here. Have you given any thought as to any additional ones that maybe you have and, and anything that might be a little bit different from some of the things that Matt put out there? I think there, there were a couple things that came to mind just in addition to uh, more so than anything else. Um, you know, the, really the, the original 10 rules Matt had there broke into a couple of camps. A couple were about process. Uh, a couple were about fitting traits to the scheme at the NFL level, whether it was looking at, you know, how production could overinflate a draft stock or how scheme could negatively impact a draft stock. And then there was a, a bucket of them in regards to, to character. And it's still hard for us that don't have the opportunity to really dive in on their backgrounds and their personal and their football character. And we're just looking at the film to accurately assess that. But it's great to bring those points up. You know, I think the rules came out today was talking about, you know, how personal character can match up with, with a football player. And, you know, bad guys could still be good football players. And my whole point to that was, well, that's just a matter of a, a value assessment from the, the GM. At the end of the day, your, you know, your belief system, you know, how you want to carry yourself in your organization will impact whether or not you take a chance on a guy that uh, has bad personal character. But when it comes to the football things, a couple of them that I wanted to you know, throw out there. I think that should be added on. One thing I believe in is have a checklist. And Matt's put out a series of articles where he breaks down the traits that he looks for at the different positions and how he charts those things. And I, I like that. It's one of the things that we teach in the academy. Each position has a checklist of all the things that we want to look at, both pro and con, so that we can keep all of our notes in order. And the big point behind that was, you know, as you get into this, you might be watching a wide receiver and you're seeing a guy that's running a lot of vertical routes, catching the ball over his shoulder, you're liking those things, you're taking positive notes down. Well, if he's not asked to, let's say, run short intermediate routes, stop on a dime, read coverage, adjust, catch around his frame, let's say his quarterback is very accurate, now there's a variety of traits around that wider receiver position that we have not evaluated just because the simple fact the film didn't provide it. And so by having a checklist, it at least alerts the scout every time, even if you know what you're supposed to look for, just remind yourself, hey, did I see this guy have a contested catch situation over the middle, and how did he perform? And if he didn't, I need to note that. I need to make sure that in my report I'm 
explaining that he didn't have those opportunities, and it's something that we're going to want to dig in more on uh, or find other film or, or what have you. Um, you know, one of the other ones that I think is important, and, and Matt brought up the point of an NFL team in the summer, um, in terms of pro and college coming together. And that's really the unique piece of it is because during this whole process we're evaluating the college guys coming into the pro spectrum, we get excited about, you know, even if we identify what they can do, we get excited about it. Um, and we talk about, you know, which teams we think might take them. But then when they get to that, that level, they're making a jump, a huge qualitative jump in, uh, in terms of their lifestyle, moving from college to a professional athlete. And so we need to understand what current teams are doing with their players, with their schemes, in order to best understand, you know, how a Kelvin Benjamin might be successful in one or two organizations and not as successful in 30 others. And that's, you know, that's okay. You know, so for a bunch of teams, his valuation might have been lower than it was for Carolina simply because they felt like they had the other tools around them in the scheme by which to elevate the one or two traits where he was at a really good level and minimize some of his deficiencies that were widely addressed by the scouting community. I think if you can do those kind of things and understand, you know, how you want to move through the process, make sure that it's stable and consistent every time, you can really, you know, draw a lot more value. I wanted to ask both you guys this, touching to that process issue. How important is it as you go through year to year to keep trying to learn more and more about the game? Because the more I get into this, the more I realize that despite my background in football, there's a ton that I just don't know. And how important is it to keep pushing yourself as an evaluator to learn more and more about it? Well, well I think I mean, it's I'll huge. Jump in and, and say that one of the things that I'm going to make sure I, I do again this year, something I've done in the past, is I try to attend uh, Glazer Clinics and, and Nike Coach of the Year Clinics around Round Base, which is the Northeast, in order to see both NFL and college coaches come in and clinic on how they're teaching and installing and progressing the game so that, again, I can understand that if I'm happening to scout a player who's playing for a coach I've heard clinic or I'm projecting a player to a scheme I've heard a coach from the NFL side clinic on, I can get a much more apples-to-apples comparison. Yeah, I agree, and that's um, a huge thing and that I try to do, and I think that it's really smart for you know prospective scouts, guys who want to either scout for teams or for the media is, Go to coaching clinics. It might cost you fifty bucks, but it's worth it because you can you can really learn. And you know, I've even learned from high school clinics. You know, because some of these high school offenses are a lot like the college offenses we see now. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, one thing that really helped me learn more, you know, X's and O's, um, is just reading. You know, I, I have, gosh, I probably have a hundred or one hundred and twenty books that I've read um, that are just you know whether it's Chris Brown's smart football books or any and everything that Matt Bowen writes for ESPN, you know, is something that I'm going to read. So um, I think a big part of it is understanding your weaknesses and, and doing your best to try to overcome those. You know, I topped out as a, an, a high school player at a really small school, and we ran the triple option. So, I mean, that doesn't really, you know, carry over to college or NFL anymore. So I've kind of made it my my goal to learn as much as I can about schemes and about you know, play calls and assignments and you know, what each each of those different schemes needs in, in each type of player. And and I think that's, you know, just a part of your self-study or self-improvement is that you're never going to have all the answers. So you got to go out there and find as many of them as you can. And and I think that's one area that Twitter's actually pretty good is you can, you can find people who really understand the X's and O's, whether it's a former player, 
former coach or, or someone who's just passionate about it, and you can learn a lot that way. But I would say understanding schemes, understanding you know trait preferences within a scheme, you know what what this offense looks for in a wide receiver versus what that one looks for, is a really big part of it. And and something that I have always wanted to do, but I've never had time, is right after the draft to like almost adjust your rankings per scheme. You know, so we've talked about Kelvin Benjamin. I would love to be able to go back, and I, I think we said this like really briefly in a video that we did, like grading that pick for Bleach Report, was that he was such a great fit for that scheme that I would have valued him a lot higher than just my baseline, you know, cover it all grade that I gave him. And, and I think you can find a, a handful of guys every year where they're just such a good fit for that team that that you would value them higher, like you guys were saying. So I think there's room for that on the team side and the media side to to really point out when. It's just such a good scheme fit. It's such a good personnel fit that you would value that player higher. Matt, when you are doing, uh, when you're conducting an evaluation of a player and you finally get around to assigning a value grade to a prospect, is that based just on the class that year and where you project them in that class, or is it based on talent compared across seasons? You know, it's kind of evolved. I think now it's more of a talent across the board. Whereas in years past, it was more like, okay, this is just on this one class. You know, um, one thing that I was really fortunate to have happen early on for me was I was able to talk to guys like Bill Polian um, and, and talk to guys like Charlie Casserly and Mike McCagnan and kind of start to understand the way they grade and value players. Um, Michael Lombardi was a big help in that too. So I've, I've kind of evolved the way I grade players. And it started out, and this is like a, a big challenge on the media side, I think, is I started out grading players in almost like a Madden-type format because I thought that's what readers would be comfortable with and understand, and it would just be familiar to them and, and easy to digest. But now I've kind of gone back to the way I learned how to scout players, and that's more on like you know more of a, a true scale that would cover across draft classes. So you know if a guy's a 6.2 in 2015, he's going to be a 6.2 in 2013 or 2016. So I think it. It allows better comparisons across those draft classes instead of just, you know, here are 32 first-round players, here are 32 second-round players, and, and kind of going about it that way. Dan, a word that we hear a lot in the evaluation world is this word context. Why is it so important when you're drilling down into a player to look at not just, you know, the play-to-play, but to put that in perspective with the game situation, the, you know, the point of the season, and other, like, sort of, 30,000 foot level issues when you're doing your evaluation on a prospect? Yeah, this was a philosophy that Lewis Reddick imparted on me in Philadelphia. And it was um, so simple in terms of you know, when the light bulb goes off for you for understanding it. But it, it, I think for me, it was really helpful hearing it from him. This was a guy that played in the National Football League. He played for a variety of teams, uh, admittedly did not have the career that his physical ability or that he wanted uh, to put out there. Part of it was just him not being ready to be a professional in different parts of his life. And he got to Cleveland, got a chance to play for Bill Belichick and Nick Saban at the same time. And you, you just see him when he tells a story about it, how the light bulb clicked for him. And, and the way he paints the picture is it keeps reminding you that these are human beings. And as such, on any given day, on any given play, you want to try to understand as much as possible about what could possibly be impacting them positively or negatively. So everything from how many years they've been in the league to how many starts that they had 
Now, when you have a guy that's a starter in the National Football League or the college level, this is a guy that is getting uh, very focused attention from the coaching staff as opposed to a backup. Uh, so they're going to have, a, ideally, a better chance of being a productive player. You want to understand any injuries that might have been going on that he can impact a guy. You know, if you have a uh, offensive tackle that has a bad ankle injury, you know, I'm thinking of Eric Flowers at the night, uh, he's going to struggle to set his feet and anchor. And so it's not a lack of ability to anchor in that particular situation per se, but maybe just because of the injury, you want to understand those things. You want to understand how coaches impact players. Have they had the same coach for four years and therefore are stable inside of the system? Have they changed position coaches every single year that they've been playing and therefore you know, have not been able to be brought along in a stable and consistent manner? Everything into weather, down in distance, game situation. Are they up? Are they down? Are they at home? Are they on the road? Who's the people around them? Who are they playing against? I mean, if you're not thinking about all those things, if you're just popping on the film, isolating one player and going, wow, he moves well, you've missed already so much information. You will never have an accurate accurate assessment. Matt, I want to uh, circle back here to the 10 rules that you had initially posted. I think they were originally from last year, but the updated uh, tweet then that kind of got this whole ball rolling and. These are obviously 10 rules that are important to you that you try to follow when you are scouting prospects. And what I'm a little curious about is which one is actually the most difficult for you to follow when you're looking at tape? Oh, wow. That's, that's a, a good one. I think it's probably rule number two, uh, which is you know what a college coach or scheme asks the player to do isn't all that he can do. Um, and I, I think that's something that I've kind of always struggled with, and especially now as we you know, start to weigh the, the merits of the spread offense and what that's doing to, you know, not only quarterbacks but receivers and offensive tackles and what it's doing to safeties on the other side of the field. I think it's easy to get caught in, like, saying someone's a system player, um, you know, whether that's a quarterback in the spread or a running back at Wisconsin and Alabama. Um, so trying to, to overcome that and to, like, you know, beat that narrative kind of out of my head because it's, it, it's just drilled into us, you know, that, um, so, you know, I guess a, a good way to put it is to scout every player in a bubble and not, not start to compare guys, you know. Um, something I always tell my friends is, like, scout the player, not the helmet. And, and I think that's, that's, like, something I should write on all my scouting reports so I don't fall into that old habit. You said the word narratives right there, and something that you see happen, especially, you know, on Twitter, and I was curious if it happens at higher levels, is this idea of groupthink. You know, the, the ball starts rolling downhill on a player. People start pointing out some flaws in their game. And then the train's just, it's out of the station. Does that happen even at the NFL level where a team starts hyping up a player and then everybody wants to jump on board? Or is that just a sort of construction of the draft Twitter world? You know, Dan might see this differently. I, I think that that happens everywhere. Um, and I think that's why, like, cross-checking is so important for team scouts because you're not just, you know, I just take a one guy's word for it and everybody falling in line with it. Um, and I, I know every team or most teams do things differently, but I'm a big fan of, you know, cross-checking positions. Um, but I also like when teams get everyone together in a room and they, you know, read the report and they watch the film together and they, they kind of pick apart a player together. But the problem with that is you can fall into groupthink. You can fall into, you know, uh, picking on one guy and, and it, it almost becomes uncomfortable in that situation to speak up and, you know, have the, the fortitude to say, like, no, like, I disagree with you guys. I think this player's great. So there are, you know, a lot of different ways to do it, but I, I definitely think that groupthink is, is something that happens at every level. You know, and Matt, you, you're, 
you're spot on. It does, um, you know, at the NFL level when you're in those rooms, I think one of the things that can change it is the relationship, the general manager or the uh, college director, whoever's going to be the, the premier voice in the room. And for different teams, I, I have seen it be different individuals. Uh, but whoever that individual is going to be that's leading that discussion, um, if they are someone who empowers their scouts, their staff to share contrarian opinions and to bring up outliers and to, to fight for guys and, um, and do that, you'll see people be more honest and open about their assessments and, and be critical of each other, but in a positive manner for the team. And I've also seen you know, general managers or coaches or ownership people come into a room and basically lay down the law, okay, here's the player, here's how the quote-unquote organization sees them, and that's it. And then the discussion's over, and everybody else just kind of has to fall in line at that point, even if they disagree. Um, and again, you know, you want to back your decision makers. You're, you are one organization, but you also would like to see some part of the internal process give the scouts a chance to, like I said, you know, throw a contrarian opinion and at least, you know, have that debate. In the, the public space, I think, you know, things kind of fall into two camps. You have uh, a camp of people whose job it is to help fans understand the current value of players in the market and therefore who their team might take. And that's an exciting thing for fan bases, and I totally understand that. Um, and I think there's another angle to the draft evaluation space where people are simply looking at traits and trying to make assessments of this player and how their skills relate to the NFL. And so those two camps can compete at times. They can overlap at times. But if you're on that value-based side and you have, uh, you know, Robert Incondici falls out of a you know hotel room and all of a sudden there's going to be questions about, um, you know, his personal character and his off-field conduct. Yes, his value could absolutely fall from the market standpoint, right? Teams could look at him and start throwing up red flags and questioning things. But there's still the argument on the other side that what he's putting on tape, you know, that shouldn't change. While his ultimate value might change because of forces outside of the tape or the field have influenced that, you know, there's like the other half of the, the coin, which is, what he did on the tape didn't change. And that narrative shouldn't, um, there really shouldn't be any um, kind of subjective bias after the fact. And so I think people just have to kind of look at uh, who's providing the content and what the goal is kind of match. I know I've fallen into that trap from a a consumer of content in in the wrong way and kind of getting frustrated with why it's the conversation going there. And then you kind of have to snap back in and recognize, Hey, this person's just trying to help a fan base understand who their team might select based on who's on the board and, and needs and things of that nature. So I think that's kind of a, a piece that, you know, of context, I guess, to keep the same term going, that should be understood here. Dan, looking a little bit deeper into some of the things that go on inside of organizations, we talk a lot about scheme fit for players, but I wonder, are, are there certain front offices where even a scout could potentially be a bad fit for a team based on what they're trying to do, or does that not really happen? Um, it shouldn't. Uh, you would like to believe that uh, general manager, coaching staff, whoever's setting the agenda for the team would, would teach and instruct and coach their scouts on what they're looking for, and the scout would be comfortable with matching the players that are available to that. Uh, I mean, clearly you have guys that are, you know, just tremendous talent, and you can't ignore it, and, and pretty much everybody would want to get their hands on them and leverage them in some way, whether they were an ideal scheme fit or not. But a lot of the other times, 
Um, you know, when you're looking at players, most of the guys hover around the, the middle in terms of their skill set. They have some pros, they have some cons, and you're really trying to match that up. And yes, I have seen situations where scouts have come in and just a uh, simple example would be a, a scout that likes, you know, physical, large, aggressive running backs. You know, they come from maybe that, you know, brand of Bill Parcells style kind of run game. And then the, the coaching staff slash you know, general manager uh, is looking at it for someone who's going to be a little more versatile in the pass game, going to run outside zone a little better, doesn't need to be as physical, needs to have better route running and hands, pass pro, and, and other things in addition to, to clearly vision and decision-making. And a scout could be advocating for a player uh, that would not be a great fit. You know, One example we had in Philadelphia, we had Jim Washburn as our defensive line coach. Jim's in Detroit now. Loves aggressive, upfield, penetrating uh, defensive linemen. That's just that's his bread and butter. Those are the kind of guys he wants to have around. And we had a scout come back from Ohio State, really in love with the football character and personal character of a guy by the name of John Simon. And unfortunately, John just didn't fit the mold of what um, Jim wanted at the defensive end position at the time. It was a, a four-down front and over front. And, you know, this guy was fine with that. You know, he advocated for a player. Hey, this can be a good, good locker room guy. He's going to be a great character guy. He's going to be a good football player. Um, just not going to be the kind of pass rusher that you're looking for. Well, now John's down in Houston. He's performing well. He's matching up. He's got Mike Vrabel coaching him. Everything's kind of falling in the line for him. Uh, and you, you do. You have those situations where, you know, a scout might like a player that the coaching staff doesn't. But at the end of the day, at least in that situation, the organizations are able to come together and all parties are able to agree about how the player's skills matched up with the scheme overall and make the right assessments. Matt, the scouting combine is coming up, you know, shortly after the new year, and people will get excited when a guy runs a fast 40 or something. But as you put in your rules, film not workouts. Why is it important to just kind of put the scouting combine results in context and keep focus on what a player does between the lines? Well, I think that the scouting combine is valuable. Um, I, I don't want to try to diminish its value, but I think it's a little overrated, honestly, um, just because, you know, you let a guy train in the 40-yard dash for three or four months, and, and he's going to run faster, um, and especially without pads on. Um, you get a couple tries at it. So I, I think it's easier to manufacture results at the scouting combine than it is on the field. And, you know, it's, it, it happens every single year. A guy runs fast, and he goes from the third round to the first round, and then two or three years later, we're all talking about, how did that guy go in the first round? Like, he wasn't that good, but it's because of the, the scouting combine. And, and I think that too often, it's just kind of lazy scouting, and it's easy to, it's easy to be human and get excited about a prospect and fall in love with a guy who works out well, but the, the right thing to do, and sometimes the hard thing to do, is to go back and look at that grade that you put on a guy right when the season ends, which is what I'm doing right now, and I'm, I'm sure it's what a lot of teams are doing right now. It's, it's looking at that grade that's just on tape. And, and more often than not, I think that grade that you put on a guy in January or February before the scouting combine is the, the right one, unless something changes with an injury or something you know, really big off the field. Like that's, that's who the guy is. What you saw on film for two, three, four years is the type of player they are. Now, I think the combine can sometimes show you um, it can validate the film. You know, if you see an explosive pass rusher on film, well, you can compare and contrast those guys with their scouting combine numbers, which I'm a big fan of doing, using the combine to break ties in guys who are similarly graded. But I think too often, and I don't know if it's the media hype that is around the combine now, you know, with everything being televised and 
all we hear about for weeks is the 40-yard dash, it seems like, when, you know, in my opinion, I think the 40 is one of the more overrated events in the entire draft process. So I think that, you know, just the the focus on the 40 or the focus on the combine definitely makes it easier to, to overhype guys. Matt, talking about you – know oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Dan. I was just saying that was something that I wrote in response to, you know, your rule on the workouts. It was the Teddy Bridgewater rule, but I kind of took it and expanded it into workouts in general. And the thing that I've noticed is that um, uh, you will see scouts leverage the data differently based on their preconceived notion. And what I mean by that is if you like the player going in and you call them maybe a second-round player, so to speak, on your grading scale, and that individual goes in and has a fantastic combine, a lot of scouts will feel empowered to go ahead and raise that grade and get even more excited about a guy that they, they like. Uh, whereas if a scout comes in and does not like a player, uh, does not like the skills that they provide, and the guy goes out and runs the same numbers of the same position group, that scout might start bashing the combine grade and going, ah, well, you know, it's just a combine, it's no big deal, you know, he's still not that good. But it could be the same position, the same combine numbers, but the, the narrative coming in from that individual scout bias and kind of clouds the ultimate judgments there, and that's the scary part of it. Is that, you know, again, you're trying to get an athletic baseline on these guys, you're trying to get the interviews, you're trying to get the medical, uh, and there's value in that entire week uh, worth of information collection. When it comes to the ultimate value on a player, uh, again, that should not so drastically change that as to move a guy, you know, in the example before, two full rounds. We're just about out of time, but I want to get you guys uh, in your thoughts on this. It's kind of a, you know, a- current case study using the scouting rules and that's Alabama running back Derrick Henry just won the Heisman but he's a guy that neither of you guys are overly high on I wanted to give you both a chance to kind of share again your thoughts on the Alabama running back well I know Dan's taking some heat in the media lately over this (laughs) one so I'll I'll go first Um, when I see Derrick Henry I see a a great college football player um, who is helped by his scheme you know which is is part of the the rules Um, you know Number three is, uh, you know, production must be the result of traits, not scheme or competition. And I, I think Derrick Henry is very good for the college game, uh, but when you look at what NFL running backs have to be able to do, they have to be able to create on their own, make people miss, and he just doesn't have that, that quickness for me. He's not a fast starter. Um, you know, he's, he's huge, um, you know, 240 pounds, um, and he, he falls forward a lot, but I just don't see the quickness. And I think some of it is personal preference. Like, everyone looks for different things in a player. I really like fast running backs, um, and maybe that's my weakness, but I, I, he doesn't fit into that. And so the games that I've seen, um, you know, I haven't filed a grade on him, but I've seen him play a lot this year and even some last year um, when he was kind of platooning with T.J. Eldon. And I just don't see the quickness that you need to be a number one back in the NFL. Um, you know, 20 years ago, absolutely, but but not with what we look for in, in today's game. And, and I think you know, something that I didn't expressly write out in my scouting rules, but that I'm a huge believer in, is that statistics are so overrated. And we see it time and time again, especially with running backs. These guys who have 15 or you know, 1,500 or 2,000-yard seasons, they are Heisman Trophy candidates or winners, and so we all expect them to be great players. Sometimes they're just great college players, not great pro players, and uh, I think Henry falls into that category. Well, to kind of piggyback off the statistics thing, um, clearly, statistically had a fantastic season, no doubt about that. And I saw um, an in, 
interesting bit of information today. The last running back to take home the Heisman, the Walter Camp, the Maxwell, and the Doak Walker Award. So obviously three big you know, player of the year and then the running back, number one running back award in college football was Ron Dane. And not to do a player comparison necessarily to a Ron Dane, but again, this is an individual that just swept college football from the award season, was the, was the darling, and then clearly didn't have the NFL career. You know, you think about Andre Ware, Troy Smith, guys have won the Heisman and unfortunately not been great NFL players. So, you know, when Henry, the size is imposing, you can, you can see defenders shying away and taking different angles. Um, I don't expect to see that as much at the NFL level, but you definitely saw it in college. Uh, I'm not as scared by his mileage um, as others will be. I think there's a he protects himself a little better than I thought he would, kind of going into it blind. Um, and I really like the way he reads in his vision. But, yeah, from a, just a pure athletic standpoint, it is a position that is predominantly impacted by athletic ability and the things that you're going to have to do in small spaces to be nimble, to stop, to start, to change direction, 360 degrees around your body. And there's just some areas there where he's not going to fall in good or better grading category, and it's going to keep him from being successful in every scheme. Very good. Well, Dan, Matt, I know uh, I, I certainly we both appreciate you, Mark, and myself coming on today. Uh, I know personally, look, I, I learned a ton just talking with you, so hopefully we'll be able to do this thing uh, again in the future because I know even just for myself, really appreciate having you on. L- learned a ton just from talking with you here. Yeah, absolutely, guys. So we'll look forward to doing that. Very good. Very good. Well, we are out of time now on Inside the Pile on the podcast, so we do have to call it a day. But if you are interested in learning a little bit more about what Dan and Matt have been talking about, we do have the entire series up on InsideThePylon.com. You can also follow Matt. His Twitter handle is at NFL Draft Scout. And you can also follow Dan at Dan underscore Hatman. And certainly for Mark and myself, we will see you next week on our regularly scheduled podcast that comes out every Wednesday from Inside the Pylon.